A quick note before the podcast starts. The audio on this absolutely sucks, as I'm still learning the do's and do nots of recording and microphone settings and post-production. I apologize for the weird and sometimes distracting thudding sounds and other sounds in the background. Um, The quality will be much, much better in the future. Thank you for bearing with me on this, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Fighting Anime, a podcast of informal and approachable conversations about big ideas in the realms of philosophy, religion, politics, psychology, and sociology. I am your host, Marshall McCready. Just so you know, this podcast may contain offensive language and mature content inappropriate for children. All right. Well, episode number one, uh, the, we are going to be talking about free will, determinism, and predestination, and I am here with my good friend, Nathan Warden. Nathan? Happy to be here. Uh, I met Nathan not too long ago through my wife's boss, and uh, we've had really good time talking about this kind of stuff. So, uh, Well, first... I thought we would just go over the terms real quick, get that out of the way. Uh, what do what does free will, predestination, and determinism mean? And uh, we didn't come up with any technical definitions, but uh, I'll take free will. I've always mm. understood free will to kind of mean like the ability to choose otherwise in a situation, or the ability to act unconstrained by the laws, by physical laws of cause and effect. Um, It's kind of the, I I put it in direct contradistinction with determinism. Right, yeah. Free will, being free to act, you've got the ability to, uh, yeah, act on your own free will. I know I'm using the the word in the definition, but yeah. Um, And then determinism, whereas everything has already been predetermined for you, that uh, because of cause and effect relationships, Everything leads to something else. You just happen to be one of those things that has been caused by other things and something that hits the next domino forward. So if your subjective experience is that you're making choices and you know doing your own thing, really you're just – what you are is something that has already been determined um, and has a purpose uh, and you are just going to live out that determined thing you're supposed to do and then pass on and be part of the endless sort of wave of – determined things, things that have happened already. They were always supposed to be like that. Things that will happen in the future, they're, they're going to happen. There's nothing that can change them. It is predetermined. Yeah, and I think it's, it's that's how I think of it too, but I also think it's important to note that like um, it's not that there's a purpose per se, like, and it's not that things were like supposed to be that way. It just so happens that there's this um, like, in the same way, like, a rock falling down a cliff. Like, given the conditions of that cliff and the conditions of the rock before the rock fell, in addition with the physical laws of, like, you know, inertia and motion and gravity and, like, all the math of it, really, the the way that the rock falls is just a matter of physics, of, of an equation. And uh, determinism is kind of like the rock couldn't have fallen any other way apart from the way that it did, given the previous causes and effects that led to the conditions immediately preceding its fall. And in the same way, like, our neurological uh, 
uh, brains, like our synapses and our, you know, whatever <laughs> is firing up in their neurotransmitters or whatever, uh, those things are subject to the same laws. And just like a rock, um, they are firing in response to previously uh, um, existing conditions. And so there's no, we're, we are literally just, if you had a, a um, if you had an all-knowing mind, it would, and if it knew all of the conditions and the laws, the, all of the conditions of how things are at the beginning of the universe, and it knows all the physical laws of how things operate, then, given that knowledge, it could it could perfectly, accurately predict the entire future. Mm. But it's not necessarily that there is anything predicting the future or setting the future. It's just a, a law, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when I said purpose, I, I meant like, Obviously, because of pre-existing conditions, that's the way things are just going to be. And so there is no purpose. It's just what are the conditions we have? What's going to happen because of the laws of physics? Um, but so I guess what I'm kind of saying is, is that what is it like to be that rock falling, right? So the rock, because of the conditions of the hill and the conditions of the rock, it's just going to do its thing. But if the subjective experiences that we have as people, like it'd be like if we were that rock wouldn't you also say like, as you're the rock falling, you'd be like, this is what I do. This is my purpose. Like if you were the rock, you would maybe see it that way. But when you step outside and you look at the, the outside of, of the perspective of the rock, you're like, okay, there just goes, there's no, the rock's purpose isn't to get to the bottom of the hill. That's just going to, that's going to be what happens if you be all knowing mind, knowing, looking at the, surveying the situation, be like, I know what the hill does. I know the gravity and the rock, that rock will end up there. Mm. It's not the purpose of the rock. It's not what the rock wants to do. It's just what's going to happen. Um, the rock though, if it, if it has a subjective experience is going to be like, uh, you know, this is what I'm, this is what's happening to me and what I am doing. And therefore this is what I, I, I could see how that would be. Um, hope it would be, the, the rock could describe what it's doing as its purpose. I guess okay. it's kind of where that comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. It comes down to like a different definition of purpose. Where I was thinking yeah. of purpose, <laughs> like some kind of like, like it's some kind of bestowed or like overlaid purpose uh, granted by something else. And you're kind of talking about like a self-identified purpose. Like the rock is determining its own purpose. And I was kind of thinking of like the physical laws being like, hey, little rock. Here is your purpose. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're already kind of getting into the, this contradiction, which I like, which is like, how do you reconcile known laws of nature with your subjective experience? Because you can, I can see it both ways where I feel like I've got my free will. I feel like I can make choices. But if I try and think about things rationally, it seems like I'm just a rock doing what it does when it's rolling down a hill. Mm. So that's why I kind of, I'm anthropomorphizing that rock on the hill that you posited. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely foreshadowing and important. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah. So, wait, so the last up, predestination, mm -hmm. I kind of think of it just like determinism, but there, except like, so like determinism, I kind of think of as like a physical law and that's it. Like, I don't think of like when someone says, uh, I believe in determinism or something like that. I feel like they're just making a statement about the occurrences of phenomena. And, like, that's it. They're not saying that there's any kind of meaning or, or you know, cosmic significance. But when someone says predestination, it's like, okay, things are now, like, 
teleological, like that is to say, like things are made in such a way that they uh, are meant to fulfill a, a purpose of some kind that is, um, that purpose is created by like God, right? Or some kind of greater thing, something outside of the things that are um, being given that purpose. So humanity or the rock, maybe, you know, every grain of sand has its own place. But um, yeah, so predestination is just kind of like God determining everything. And this is something that um, Calvinists uh, tend to believe. We have a, I have a friend that, well, both of our friend, Mario, he's a Calvinist, and uh, we might have him on the podcast at some point to talk about that, because I think it's interesting. Um, maybe we'll have Nathan back, and we'll have a three-some. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so so before we go into, like, those murky areas, like you were saying, of, like, how does consciousness fit into, like, this scientific kind of materialist perspective, I thought we would just kind of uh, go into how these concepts and how our personal thinking of them has affected our past. Like, um, uh, how, how is it thinking about these kinds of things impacted you, Nathan? Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, for me personally, the ideas of free will determinism and predestination, uh, have factored a lot into my faith and spirituality. I was raised as a Christian and then kind of throughout college and graduate school kind of lost that and have been really struggling in the last couple of years um, and still struggle a lot um, with faith and believing in God and Christianity. And um, some of my biggest uh, questions and things that just don't make sense have to do with free will um, because to me, it feels like if you have a all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God, which is, I mean, maybe someone wants to tweak that definition, but from my understanding, um, that's the God that I was raised. You know, this is what God is like. This is these are the properties of God. So if we're if we're gonna posit that God and say like, hey, here's here's what God is. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. Um, I just get this weird feeling that, um, that when I, 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 it, I get, I get concerned that God was invented rather than actually a, a, is real because it, it just, for me, it's very easy to imagine people throughout history defining God that way. Um, and having God be an idea that they made up rather than an actual thing. Um, because that that's just what would make sense to to them and to people now. Like, hey, all-knowing, all-powerful, good, God, done, like, great. But it doesn't seem well-considered. It seems like if you've got an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God, just straight up right, right away, all-powerful, like, what does that mean? It, it's easy for me to think, like, okay, you say all-powerful because you wanted it to be the greatest, most powerful thing. But, like, what do you mean by that? You just said that because it w sounded good. It's like, it's, it's so, it's so easy for me to think like someone just made that up. Like if there's an actual being out there that is all powerful, it's important to think about what the implications of that are. What are the details? How does that like explain to me how that actually works? And if you can do that, great. But like no one actually understands how all powerfulness 
works exactly. And then they can hide behind like, well, of course I can't because I'm not all powerful. But then it's like, well, then what do you really know about anything about this thing? (laughs) But anyway, I should just say that the problem, if you're all powerful and presumably that that doesn't mean a lot of power, it literally means all powerful. Like if you created everything, then you have control over everything. So kind of the Calvinist view of uh, God can manipulate any atom down to the most subatomic level. Every little thing God created and could change if he wanted because he is all powerful. It's not just like at a certain realm, I can exert some influence politically because I'm God. I'm really powerful. No, no, no. If you wanted, you, he could make this table disappear into nothing or he could fill it with uh, food. He could part the waters. He can do any miracle. He could destroy the universe. He could create millions of other ones. He is all powerful. Like, to me, that definition, it's like, think about, just take take 10 minutes to think about what all-powerful means and all the things that it can do. And when you have a full idea of just like how, like, it's the most power, it's all of it. Um, and then think like, okay, if God is every, has control over every atom, so not just inanimate objects, but like the things that, th- that those atoms make up, a person, a being, an animal, he can, you know, cut off your arm, he can dust you into Marvel Comics nothingness, he can... Do whatever. So the fact that you're moving around and making choices is because he's letting you do that. Nay, even, even more than that, he created everything that led to you. And he could change things if he wanted to, which means the way things are happening are the way he designed them to be. So every atom moving the way it does from billions of years ago until now, if God's all-powerful, he's controlling every little thing. So the way you were born, the way you are now, was his plan. And if that's his plan, you have no control over what you are. He's making you be the way you are. It's literally like a puppet master. It's literally like making a robot, even more than making a robot. It's the highest definition of control that you can have. And that's Sorry, I just took way too long to like. No, go, no, go, 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 that, but, that was great. Yeah. But that is my problem with free will: is that if God is the way, if God is just all power straight up, all powerful straight up, and you and you you don't diminish that at all, and you just leave it being all powerful, then you don't have free will because God made you the way you are. And the way you described free, what was the definition again that you gave for free will? Uh, I believe I said it was like the ability to choose otherwise in a situation. Right. You can't choose otherwise because everything that led to you is what God chose. Right. If you were able to choose otherwise in the face of God, you would be outside of some of God's control. You would be outside of the universe he created. There'd be something that you could do that God could not stop. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking too long, but the go, <laughs> the if there, there's something that you could do that God couldn't stop, uh, you've said some really interesting things before about, um, well, yeah, what, what, is, what is your reaction just to that? No, whole, I like, that was, yeah. I mean, it's really kind of, for me, I remember first, so like some background on me, I went to, I grew up in a you know Christian household, Southern Baptist, I guess for the most part, Southern Baptist. Um, I went to a fundamentalist private school, um, from fourth grade to until I graduated high school. Um, and I remember even um, a, a lot of my first problems about free will were kind of uh, 
illustrated in like this microcosmic situation of the Garden of Eden. And um, at the time, I was kind of like trying, it didn't really matter too much to me, but I was trying to, at, at the time, figure out like, is the Garden of Eden, Eden story, you know, metaphorical or literal? Because I was taught that it was literal. I remember literally being in my middle school history class. And, um, and my teacher pointed on the map and she goes, here in this region, this Mesopotamian region, I, I remember it. Uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers is where the Garden of Eden was. And I remember just being like, at the time even, like flabbergasted and like, what? How can, what do you mean there's where it was? Anyways, so I had a lot of, you know, doubts. I'm not a Christian right now. I, I, I think I, uh, early in my college years, like when I was a freshman, I think I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not that anymore. Uh, but throughout high school, it was pretty difficult. And I was thinking through the problem of free will in particular. And so I was thinking about it like this. So say that the Garden of Eden was a, a literal story. And, and this is this works even if you think it's metaphorical, which I think it is. But um, if it's metaphorical, just apply the same... It's just an, use the analogy to apply to the first human being or set of human beings. It applies regardless, but it's easier to think about the Garden of Eden. Okay, so the Garden of Eden, right? Um, Eve uh, is tempted by Satan, uh, the snake, the serpent, and uh, she she commits the first sin, and then she gets Adam to sin. We all know the story. Okay, what got me was... I, I would always hear this story, and people would be like, oh, can you believe Eve... God, like, humanity is so evil. Like, I can't believe Eve was so bad. And I remember just being like, what? Like, why was Eve such that she was more predisposed to falling into Satan's temptation than not? Like, I was like, whose fault is it that Eve wasn't like, screw you, Satan, I'm not doing that. Like, what made her more likely? Why was she such? Why was her character or her being or whatever such that she was like, I'm going to go with this Satan guy. Like, this seems like a good idea. And the only thing that I can attribute it to is, well, God made her that way. You know, like if it's a perfect scenario because there's, um, it's funny because a lot of times Christians, they'll say like, well, Eve, Adam and Eve are kind of like these blank slate these blank slates, like they were just created by God and they were just the blank human template, whatever that is supposed to mean. Like that's, that's an incoherent idea. Um, we know that there's no such thing as blank slates. You know, Steven Pinker, the Harvard psychologist, he talks about this. Like it's just a, a ridiculous idea, genetics, all kinds of things, socialization, whatever. Um, but even it's kind of like the fact that there was not socialization processes and the fact that they were the first humans, there was no genetics. It makes it even a worse case that like, well, clearly they inherited this sinful proclivity, this, this sinful nature, this like predilection to sin directly from God. And that just drove me crazy. And like, and I like, so once again, like this maps onto humanity, even if the story is metaphorical. And the thing was, is, why this was so big for me was that it really, it hit me in terms of, like, the morality. Like, if, if 
like, if this predestination is true, then the Holocaust, to me, you know, and this is the standard thing, like, you need some explanation for evil. But the explanation that you need becomes even more bloated when you're grappling with the fact that it all directly happened as a consequence of God's forethought. And so last, before we'll dive into this, is I, I kind of think about this thing as like, uh, before reality was made, before the world was made, there was God, you know, chilling in nothingness, whatever, however there could be a nothingness and a something chilling in it. And he's like contemplating, he's like, hmm, what world do I want to make, you know? And I, I guess there are probably like infinite options, right? Because he's God, he can create pretty much any world, like any world where things logically cohere, I guess. Um, and so I kind of think of it like he was about to make a world cake. Like, think of the world as, like, a cake. And he's trying to think about, like, what's the perfect recipe, right? And so he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So he knows how the each potential cake ingredient, will taste. Yeah, yeah each mm-hmm. he knows how each ingredient will affect the end result of the cake's taste. Do I want a lemon cake? Do I want, yeah, it's like he knows everything that goes into it and what it's going to be the result. Yeah. Exactly. And so f- that means that for him to come to a conclusion and for him to go, oh, I want to create X cake. This is the one that I want to make. And so this is reality as we know it. Then he had to have chosen every single little ingredient because he could have chosen the world to be just different enough uh, using a different ingredient. Mm -hmm. And then he could have been like, this is the perfect world. So what that kind of means is that the world as we've lived it is the precise world God chose before it was even a thing, right? Everything. Down to the sand, each number of sands on each, you know, beach, the number of atoms. Because if he wanted to, he could have slightly changed it to a different world. He could have created another world where everything's exactly the same except you're blonde and I've got black hair. Right. Like, everything is chosen. Yes. And down to, like, the the star burning out or whatever. And um, that really affected me. And then even after I kind of drifted away from Christianity, the idea of determinism affected me. Um, And we, we both, like listen to Sam Harris's podcast. If you haven't checked out that podcast, I would recommend it. It's very good. Um, and he's like a big proponent of determinism. Uh, he doesn't, he thinks free will is an illusion. He says that word illusion. Um, and, uh, well, I, per- what do you think? I personally think the idea of not having free will, like forget whether it makes sense or anything. It's just kind of depressing. Like mm. I feel some people find this like freedom in it, but to me, like it's really depressing. Yeah, so the idea being that instead of there being a God that shows the universe that happened and everything's decided by God, therefore everything that plays out was determined by God, in this sense, take God out of it. All right, we've got the Big Bang, we've got laws of nature, and even though God's not the one that is the start of it all, things are going to have cause and effect relationships based on physics, and therefore the way things turn out are already decided, just like you could do an experiment in a lab. You could say, all right, based on these conditions, this will be the output. The whole world is one big lab where based on, you know, this doing that, you could you could go back to the very beginning and say, all right, based on the expansion of, of the Big Bang at this time, these things are going to form, which means that there's going to be a world around a sun somewhere, which means life will, under these conditions, evolve, which means, wow, we get some social structures. And, so, you know, like you could, 
so determinism without God, just that's kind mm. of the, what you're talking about. And so, yeah, I think, um, this is a super interesting area for me because, uh, yeah, the subjective experience of being able to move my hand be like, I have control over me. I can go like, I can do a little dance. For the record, Nathan <laughs> is dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that feels like I've got my, I feel like I could knock over this microphone right now. If I wanted to, I could do that. You've got your, your decibels numbered mic. Um, <laughs> uh, but if I am just the result of, you know, two other humans making me, um, I would have those sets of choices and, given, you know, every little tiny factor from social to language to temperature, you know, another thing under my same circumstances would do the exact same thing. So maybe the fact that we're the only thing that you can kind of take solace in is that like, yeah, all right. If, if another me was in my place, it'd do the same thing. Everything's determined, but it's like, I am not, I, I'm me right now. So the things that happen appear to be my choice and it doesn't really have any practical significance that if I'm already determined, um, I still don't have that subjective experience and therefore it's not worth being not, it's not worth trying to, uh, act on because, you can only work with what you've got and what you've got is a subjective experience of your reality. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. So there's something that really... So uh, there was this live event that Sam Harris put on and it was like him and I think it was Eric Weinstein and Ben Shapiro. Live one? Or... Yeah, it was like a live... I listened to it on their, their podcast. And they were having this discussion about free will, right? And Sam Harris, he said something like, we don't have free will and therefore we should do... X. Like, I, I, I think he was talking about at both the individual level and, like, the, the socio-political level, we need to institute these changes in our lives. And uh, Shapiro said something like, well, how can, how can you, how does that follow? Like, and that's mm. something that's always bugged me. Like, yeah. when, I, when people talk about free will, they say something like, you don't have any free will. Therefore, you should, and then they say something. And to me, that's like... It's not an argument to do something. Or not. Well, and the yeah. thing is, is <laughs> you know what's really strange is I notice that people who, that the idea that we don't have free will when believed and really emphasized oftentimes changes the course of people's lives. And that, in a, in a way that I'm, I'm still working to fully articulate, seems inherently contradictory. Hmm. Like, if I were to say something like, I don't believe I have free will, and therefore I shouldn't feel guilty about anything. Hmm. And if I say that, then my future uh, is altered, in, in a sense. Like, I'm not saying it, it this in and of itself defies the laws of determinism, but I'm just noting that what you feel guilty about um, alters your future decisions. Or I would argue it should, but at least it does in many instances. If you do something and you just feel terrible, you're probably not going to do that thing or you're at least going to pause next time you do it or you're going to act differently right and people who onboard this free will belief um still uh they 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 it what i'm trying to say is that it kind of alters to some extent what they feel about the world and to me that seems very strange mm -hmm. right 
like you say, like, um, well, well, real, real quick, um, I kind of have this view of belief, right? And we've talked about this, like, um, that belief is lived. Like, so for example, if someone says, hey, I'm really sorry that I did X thing. I'm really sorry about that. I feel terrible. Um, I'm going to try not to do it again in the future. And say, like, they make no ostensible effort ever to not do that thing again. Like, they just do it again and again. And they just seem, like, totally, like, willy-nilly. They're just haphazardly doing the thing. Then I would be like, well, clearly you didn't believe that it was bad or at least you didn't believe it was bad enough to not do or whatever and to it's me bad enough just to say that and then move on. yeah like yeah bad enough and or like what they believe is that they just want to make you feel better right. in the moment or so something. they said that but if they actually believe it there would be action right and and how do you gauge belief in determinism because every single person who wakes up who believes in free will says to themselves, I'm going to get out of bed. There, you. I don't think it's even theoretically possible. Like, even if you're pretending to play dead, or you're pretending to be unconscious or, like, in a coma, you're still in your, like you say, like, in your subjective mind, thinking, I'm going to pretend to play dead. Like, I don't think it's even possible to actually live out, which is to say, believe, the believe in the non-existence of free will, uh, which is something that's really difficult because, like, obviously it's still a concept and, like, mm. what does it mean to believe in gravity? Well, I, I actually, no, that, that's pretty clear. It means you, you don't jump off of tall buildings. <laughs> it, it'd be like, I believe that, because I believe in predeterminism, I think that my body will still do stuff if I decide to stop. Stopping moving is also a decision. There's no way to not make a decision. You are going to take some actions because even inaction is a choice. Um, so yeah, it seems like a, a paradox. Yeah, but I think we can. We have like these two lenses, and you hit on this earlier between like with the rock. Mm. There's like this. There's the subjective uh, view where like when we see someone. Like, we were talking about this, like, when we see someone... I guess I'm going to keep saying that when we, we talk about all of this stuff already. Um, but when you see someone, you don't see a collection of physical material. Like, when I see you, Nathan, I see a person, and I literally can't really disconnect what I know about you as a person. Like, as in your character. Like, these invisible qualities, like your sense of humor, things like that. I can't disconnect that from your material being. Like, they're kind of overlaid. And in a sense, there's, like, these two lenses. There's, like, the... For lack of a better word, there's, like, the subject and the object. And the subject is Nathan as a person. And in this lens, like, if you were to view the world as, like, a, a place of material objects and physical laws, you wouldn't see Nathan. Like, as in, you wouldn't see Nathan as a person who exhibits you know, discipline, or who loves his girlfriend, or who is funny, like, the, those, even those concepts of humor, humor isn't something that exists materially, it's not something you can, it, it's, it's behavior, right, and, it, and it's, and it's not just behavior, it's the perception and categorization of behavior, and these, all of these things are not 
physical objects. So in the same way, they're not physical objects as the material of the rock. Um, and so I, it's really these paradigms, these like subject object paradigms that are like, when we talk about determinism are just like totally clashing in a way that like is just mind boggling and frustrating. Um, yeah, like, uh, <sighs> yeah. So I, I always, um, I hope I'm not boring you with that. I know you've heard my, my metaphor, uh, no, finding I, Nemo. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's great. I, I think the listeners would appreciate it. So the, the way that I kind of, uh, conceptualize the paradox of free will is thus. <laughs> I just wanted to use the word thus. Henceforth. <laughs> yeah. Henceforth. <laughs> um, when, uh, the movie finding Nemo was being conceptualized, there uh, is a guy named John Lasseter who works at Pixar, and he's the producer of a lot of Pixar movies. So he's like, all right, we're going to make this Pixar movie. And he gets with his team, and they start you know, writing the script. And you know, they rewrite, they write, they talk about, all right, what do we want to see in this movie? They come up with a script, um, and eventually they start storyboarding. All right, what's it going to look like? And then, oh, well, maybe we need to still make some changes to the script. They go back and forth, and eventually they've got a script that they're like, all right, lockdown, great. Then they jump into their computers and software and they start, um, they start creating characters. And like, I went to film school. So like, there's a program called Maya. There's a program, you know, you got Final Cut Pro. You've, you're going to be creating this animation pretty much pixel by pixel almost. Like you, you literally, you literally create the skeleton of a character and then you kind of add its joints and the way that it can move and then you kind of fill it out and someone else puts on this, the texture of the skin. And then if it's like, you know, Monsters, Inc., you, you can get got like the hairs on Sully's body. Or if it's a fish, it's kind of, the, you know, how the scales look. Everything about the character is, is meticulously created in this computer program. And the same thing with the setting. They create the underwater land area that, you know, Finding Nemo takes place in. Uh, everything from the light streaming in from the top to the colors of the coral, um, the, you know, everything. So then, then you get, uh, your characters and you plop them down into the setting and then you, you say, all right, we're gonna have this camera angle. Like this is where the, the perspective of the camera looking at the character is going to be. And then we're going to change that character, that angle. And then we're going to go for a wide shot and you're communicating the story that you created with the script. And then you've got scenes and then you've got the acts and then you have your whole movie and everything about that movie from start to finish was initiated and planned by John Laster and his team. Nothing in that movie could have been different had John Laster not willed it to be so. Mm-hmm. It did not have any mind of its own. It couldn't change what it was. It exists pixel by pixel, frame by frame, the way it was created. So then John Laster ships that movie out, goes to movie theaters, we sit down and we watch it. While we're watching the movie, it appears Marlin the fish has free will. It appears like he makes choices like, oh, I'm going to go try and find my son Nemo. And while you're watching the movie, it's perfectly fine to describe it just like that, like this fish has free will. But the moment the movie is over, you know and can then talk about the outside world outside of that movie and the fact that John Lasseter created it. Now, this is a metaphor for what I picture what the idea of God is like. If you've got a God, 
that is all powerful, then how could it be any other way than like John Laster creating Finding Nemo and God creating the world? Because again, it just seems like that is the natural, the, the, the best that we can do to, to conceive of the dynamic of God creating the world if he's all powerful. Um, sometimes people will be like, well, in that metaphor, uh, John Laster, he could still walk into the movie theater and he could turn off the movie and he could uh, change something about it um, if, he, if he wanted to. But he doesn't because he created it the way he wanted it to. So he's got the character of a person who's like, all right, I made this creation. It's going to play out the way that I wanted it to. Um, and so God, again, is also like he's all powerful. So he could step into humanity. And maybe he does with burning bushes and you know parting waters and stuff like that. But for the most part, he lets it kind of go the way he wants. Um, the fact that he could change things doesn't take away the fact that he doesn't. Um, a lot of times people say like, oh, just because he could, he he doesn't. Um, but to me, it's kind of like, all right, uh, even, even with that, again, it's still his whole creation. He could have before in the storyboarding process and the, um, the character uh, rigging process, he could have made a different choice to make something else happen. So once the movie's playing again, everything is happening the way exactly that he had described it. And so mm-hmm. that that's my, my problem with uh, trying to figure out what free will is, is that it just seems like every single little thing is built by God and therefore doesn't have any free will outside of the context of the movie. Yeah. So I think that's, I love that analogy. Um, that, and I think it, it works really well. And one of the things that I like about it is, so here's an, here's an, an, an element I think that is important is that, determinism and predestination, and I'll clarify what I mean by that in a second, uh, in this context, they both treat the future like the past in the sense that the past, like for like right now, like you and me, this re this timeline or whatever, the past is fixed in terms of like, like in, from an objective perspective, the past occurred the single way, that it did. We can't change anything about it. Nothing can be changed. It's already happened. It's yeah. fixed. You can't go back in time and change the past, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it could be, and this is, you know, the argument that determinism makes, uh, or that the theory of determinism implies, and that predestination implies, is that the future is the same. Is the same. It's it's there's a, so I think of it like um, think of it like a line, and in the middle of the line is a dot like a, some kind of like a period or something. That's the present. The dot is the present. And the, the past and the future are both one straight line. And the only difference between the future line and the past line is just um, that it, it hasn't happened yet. That's it. But it's still just one timeline. Uh, and I will later talk about why I don't agree with this assumption. Um, but what I like about your analogy And what I think is uh, 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 a a critical part of predestination is that it treats God as the very, like like his location in time, as it were, is at the very end of the timeline. Because think about it, and like in people's talk about like, oh, God is outside of time and that has implications. Like that people say that as if like they're just like in awe, but like you have to think about what does God being outside of time mean? Well, it means that he's looking 
back at all of time. He's in the most, the most future, the future most point. Possibly maybe he's blanketing it all at once. And so he can look back and look forward at the same time. Right. Something but, like that. Where but he, his mere ability to look back. Like, I'm means, not saying it's exclusively looking back. Means that he, he's at the end in some way, shape, or form. Part of it is at that end. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, I don't want to get into the whole thing of, like, does time exist? Like, time existing is one of Right the, now, time exists. Time exists. <laughs> right now, you know, if you think about it, time is one of the most real things you can ever think about. Because your consciousness changes. And your consciousness is the most real thing you have. And so that's what I'm referring to when I talk about time. Um, okay, so if God has this ability to look back, which is to say if, if part of him is in the future, like you say, even if he's, you know, encompassing, he's umbrelling, he's an umbrella of all time, whatever. If he's looking back, that means everything already happened, which means that it's just one straight line, a fixed timeline. One straight line. Not multiple possibilities. Not a tree. Yeah. Not a tree. No, because the past is fixed. And if he's in the future and he's looking back, it's fixed. In the same way that the movie is fixed. When once it's once Lassiter uh, hit the final enter button of like save project, mm. movie is now finished. Final edits complete. In the, in that sense, he's looking back at the past of this thing that is now fixed, right? And if that's the case, um, then I, I think you... Well, I personally believe that if you are if you are a Christian or if you're a theist or you, and you believe in this omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful God, you, you have an even harder time, uh, a bigger burden of, of, to argue for free will than someone who is secular, who doesn't believe in God because of this issue of the outside-of-time thing. Um, if you're secular and you're, uh, you know, presumably agnostic or, you know, maybe atheistic, but I think agnostic is, is a safer bet, um, that just means you don't have a position on if there is a God and if there's anything outside of time. And you're like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna create my beliefs or I'm gonna come to my beliefs based off of the assumptions that I have. And one of those assumptions is not that there's a God, right? Um, yeah, so that, that... And um, I'm going to rant for a little bit longer. It'll bring us to our next topic. So my problem with determinism, and, and so I'm not a Christian, right? So I'm able to, I'm, I think I'm able to enter into this problem with determinism. But if you are, I, my position at least is that you can't make this move. Um, but if you're not, then I think that you can see the timeline is kind of like one of those old fashioned brooms where like, like there's like straw at the end and, and it's just like a bunch of of strands of straw just kind of crazily at the end, right? So think of the the handle or, or like the point on the broom before like the straw fluffs out. That's the present. That's the present moment. And the past is just one stick. It's just one solid wooden thing that can't be changed. But what the straw represents of the broom that's kind of like spreading out, those are future possibilities. I don't think that the future is like the past. And if the future is not like the past, then determinism does not... You could argue it doesn't hold. You might could say, well, determinism holds up to now, which is honestly kind of a... What's the... A trivial kind of redundant thing to say. Wait, no. Redundant's the wrong. Trivial thing to say because, well, of course. Of course things happened the way, the way that they did for us to be where we are now. That's 
why would no one is going around saying there are different there are different pasts that's not and if they're saying that they mean something else by past because that would be absurd okay um if the future is unlike the past then determinism you can't extrapolate you can't take the 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 handle of the broom and make it the broom side of the broom it, you you can't extrapolate from the, the the past timeline and say the future is has the same exact properties as the past. Um, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. So when you say, all right, we've got these broom strands coming out, um, then it's like, okay, so presumably one of those strands we're going to go down, right? Yes. It's like all these possibilities. And eventually you go down one, and then the, the stick becomes a little bit longer because that turns into the way that it went. And uh, you keep having this ability to kind of go in different ways, but... The past is different than the future in that once the past has happened, it's an unmoving thing. The future always has options. Right. The future only becomes fixed once it has occurred and become the past. Hmm. Um, uh, okay, so with that, I'm going to make my case for free will. Okay, and keep in mind, one thing, <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> one thing we haven't talked about is, like, I don't think anyone in the right mind, or I believe no one should, if they are in their right mind, hold, believe that we have completely unconstrained free will. Like, what on earth would that even mean, right? Like, you are affected by your parents. Your, by, the surroundings, the room you're in. Exactly, the, the, yeah. the time that you live, the location, the, the country, you know, how, what your parents are like, what your genetics are. Yeah, if you had unrestricted free will, you would be that God people posit as being all-powerful and could create your environment around you. Or, like, that doesn't even, again, doesn't even make a lot of sense. Again, what is God? Um, but anyway, totally get to your point. What the heck is even unrestricted free will? You're always affected by the things outside of you you have a dynamic of choice rather than full control exactly like so free like for this statement human beings don't have free will to be meaningful it has to be theoretically possible for humans to have free will mm. right and so some and people, that doesn't seem possible well when we define free will in this or total free will? Total, it's it's traditionally yeah. described as like libertarian free will. It's the libertarian free will is like the phrase that people use um as far as I know to to describe this 100% mm. free will, right? Mm. And that's just a ridiculously absurd concept, right? Because of your because of you have limits, right? You are if you had total free will, wouldn't that mean that you'd have total power? It would mean that you have a total power, but it would also mean that you are completely and totally uninfluenced and unimpacted by things like genetics. And that doesn't make any sense at all because you don't decide who you are or you weren't, you didn't decide to be born. You don't decide like if I, I if I had, yeah, I, I guess you I didn't decide to, to be, to, in, you didn't decide to be blonde, which is, you know, it's other like genetics have personality, you know, personality traits are, are heritable. Some of them, um, which is, you know, kind of a weird thing to think about, but it's true. Um, and also, for you to think that that a human born in 500 BC ha has the same opportunities or would think the same way about the world, like would perceive reality the same as someone in 2019, would, 
<laughs> I can't deal with that, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense, right? So we we have to define free will, and I don't have a definition, right, because that's just ridiculously difficult, but mm. we, have to, we have to at least conceptualize free will as something theoretically possible in the human landscape, which is to say it has to be somewhat constrained, right, by life, human life, right? Like, y- you get it. Um, I-, I think that's clear. And, um, okay, so given that, here's my case. All right, so, first, if determinism is true, um, if it holds for the future, then I can't alter my future. Right? I, what, what, what would that even mean? I, I just can't. It's the future is set, right? But I would alter, I, I would propose that this perspective, it kind of puts people in a vacuum. Like it kind of puts me, Marshall, in a vacuum. And it says all of my neurological processes are just purely the result of physical cause and effect, right? And I think, well, okay. So, and I would say who you are. Like I believe. Um, and, and, you know, this is an idea in, in psychology, that what you call the you is three things. It's your mind, it's your body, and those are very different. Because think about, do you does, do you and your mind, so to speak, choose to feel hungry, or is it your body feeling hungry? There's a there's a bif- there's a, an important bifurcation there. Um, um, and then the third aspect is your environment. Your environment is literally part of you when you say the word you your environment is a part of that and that that's a difficult thing um but i'm just going to throw that out there right um okay so say i need to go to the grocery store tonight i need to go to the store and i need to pick up some eggs or whatever (laughs) i actually do um uh, this is funny because yesterday you forgot to get eggs and Aliona came by our place and got the four eggs from us, right? Yep. Okay. My wife sacrificially went to go get some eggs from our very generous neighbors. Um, so uh, say I'm like, oh my gosh, today's a really busy day. I'm, I'm going to forget. I know I'm going to forget to go to the store, right? Um, and so I make a, a reminder on my phone. And I, on my phone, I program in an alarm. Marshall, you know, make sure to get eggs. Uh, I include my name in it in case I've forgotten who this reminder is for. It's for you, Marshall. Get the eggs. Uh, okay, and, and I save it. And then say, for the sake of in this thought experiment, say I instantly right then forget about going to the store. And I'm just doing other things, right? Say there are other important things. I'm editing this podcast or whatever. Um, and say that I was on a track to completely forget to go to the store the whole night like my mind the physical it's i think this is perfectly theoretically possible that in my mind in my brain right the 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 firings in my brain things are happening such that i am going to forget you for you're focused on something else and it's just you're gonna forget this i'm going to forget happens all the time it does but then my phone goes off and it's like hey Go to the store. And then I, rem- I remember at this point. And this happens all the time where, like, something else reminds us. And in a moment where we're like, sometimes it's even like, oh, my gosh. If I hadn't been magically reminded of that homework assignment, I, t- I would have failed. You know, that's literally happened to me sometimes. Um, 
So my phone reminds me, and then I remember, and then I go to the store. So my future has been altered by my phone, which is a thing external to me, where if you were to say, picture Marshall in a vacuum, you wouldn't picture me chilling on my phone. My phone wouldn't be part of the thing that you would typically mean by Marshall. But it is. Our phones are part of us. They, they change our, our behavior all throughout the day. They help us remember things. They help us keep track of things. They're integral to, to kind of what we mean when we say, I'm going to do something by I. It's me and my phone, right? Hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, people are so protective of their phones. But, um, okay, so this happens and I go to the store. So now I ask you, who altered my future? I would say, I did. I altered my future. I have a really difficult time. So this is this is like, I call it the argument from self-priming. You know, priming mm. in these psychological experiments or like uh, in like a social psychological experiment, you'll see something. You'll see like a, a hand sanitizer dispenser and then you'll be more conservative politically, which is actually an experiment that is true. Like on average, if you have two groups and they go in and they take a test of political conservatism, and one of them sees a, a stand uh, of a hand sanitizer or something reminding them of physical cleanliness, they be, they'll report more conservative scores. So in the same way, if I put my own hand sanitizer stand, which is to say my own priming, my own prime, I can affect my own future. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that makes total sense. I mean, I'm, I'm on board... Uh, with that thought that um, you use the phone to outsource some of your you-ness, your will, your whatever, and you going throughout your day from then on would have resulted in a different outcome had you not at that one point put a little checkpoint in and been like, I want to remember to go down this strand on the future gamut of things that I could do. And so you willed yourself to that strand where you go and pick up the eggs using the tool of your phone the phone had a bit of your initiative in it. Mm. Yeah. And I could see how, so after, if you're, if so, so plot, plot this story on a timeline, right? Say I, I set the alarm at 2 PM and I go to the store at 7 PM. It doesn't really matter. Well, it'd be easy to look at the story as a whole and go, well, everything that occurred, occurred the way it did, it did due to the, uh, previously the extant conditions in conjunction with physical laws. And you can make a determinist case, deterministic case where you can go literally everything that happened was the result of cause and effect. But I would argue you start to be get into a problem once you put a, a, a once you cut the timeline and you separate the future from the past. Um, because if like right now in this future, if someone was sitting here and they're like a hardcore determinist, only after a thing happens can they go, that thing was determined. And they can say in the abstract, everything that occurs in the future will be determined. But they can't point to anything specific. And I think that's because, okay, what if Apple at 5 p.m., in between my alarm setting and my uh, going to the store, had released an update? And they had, and then that screwed up my alarm or something. Um, well, that would affect my future, right? And so, one, and 
And this kind of sounds like I'm making an argument from ignorance where I'm saying, oh, because we can't know all of the potential things that will affect the future, mm. that means it's not fixed. Well, but I would say is, um, what I would say is if you're saying that, I want to make, make sure to get this right. Let, let me think for a second. Um, yeah, it becomes unfalsifiable, determinism does. It becomes unfalsifiable if you if you make it such that no matter what the future ever is, if it is always cause and effect, um, then I don't see how you could falsify that. And that's why determinism is a incredibly powerful argument. Hmm. Like people who believe it and who 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 argue for it they will win a lot of debates because it's kind of like conservative economics, like very lightweight, unsophisticated conservative economic principles where it's just like in their own system, like it's a closed system and everything is, it operates based on these very simple principles mm -hmm. uh, like supply and demand. And if, and if only, you can only disprove or combat the overall economic argument if you throw additional complications like well what about externalities oh my gosh and it just like explodes right or something um in that same way you have to add something to this deterministic principle uh to combat it otherwise it's it stands right like it's really difficult to to wound it yeah know? yeah that's that's interesting. So if, can you zoom out though and say like, because Steve Jobs created the iPhone, he enabled you to make the choice where you put a reminder on your phone. And so you again, don't have free will because of the things that happened before you determined your options and based on the options you have in front of you and based on who you are, which again also wasn't determined by you, you will choose what you did. Um, choice is just a stand in for, there are so many options that could have that. There are so many options that what we call the option that happens a choice but it's it's just what was gonna. I'm trying to I'm trying to no, poke holes. In I see thing. what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. So like, I think this is really well illustrated when like this scenario where I say, um, think of a city. Got one? Sure uh, do. You do. Okay. <laughs> I. I uh, so something popped into your head, or maybe like a few cities popped into your head, and you picked one, right? Well, the the options, the ones that popped up into your head. Where did they come from? Like you, the places you had been, you or, know, well, or, or maybe a map, not. Or... Like it's it's hard to know because you didn't systematically go about choosing them. Mm. Like so, and this is like really this is a difficult thing using the word you. Like you is multifaceted. It, it is not a, a static thing. When people say you, you really got to think about what is you in this context. Subconscious, conscious. What's, what is it? You're going to go Freudian? Yeah, is let's, it the, let's do Freudian. Is it the id or the ego or the, or the, the super, super ego? ego? Yeah. yeah, what's talking? What's yeah. doing the, where's the thing? So like the, the whatever part of you was, I'm going to, you know, we're going to 
personify it, anthrop- or anthropomorphize it or whatever, um, they go, hey, here are some city options. We got Boston, Paris, um, I don't know, uh, LA, and New York City. And in your, so that's, that's, that part of you presented you with the options. And then you, the other part, is like, I'm going to put one in my head. I'm going to be thinking about it. I'm going to go with Boston. I'm thinking about Boston, right? Well, your options, you didn't have free will in the sense that, in this sense, in the sense that you couldn't have picked from any option, right? Your options were constrained by what came to mind, and what came to mind, you don't choose that. Mm-hmm. It just happens, right? Like, you don't have any choice in, in that in that scenario. Yeah, there's a part of you that's making you breathe. You don't really have a choice to not breathe. That happens without you thinking. The, the maybe subconscious uh, you, maybe, or the, the physical lizard brain of you is, is helping you breathe, but you're not choosing to do that. Some part of you is giving you your ideas and thoughts, and then another part of you is sifting through and acting on those kind of that mm-hmm. type of thing, right? Yeah. And so uh, the problem with, where the you know, the real... I'm not trying to downplay this at all. This is this is a big deal, right? Like we are hugely influenced by the formation of our uh, unconscious selves. To use that term, unconscious self or something. Like whatever forms and and molds the part of Nathan from which the options of choices arise, because that's a very real part of you. Uh, will will have a huge impact on your human will, your agency, what you choose to value in your life. And, you know, I'm a sociology student, and study sociology for a while, and you will have a very dim view of human choice because you can accurately predict um, a lot of behaviors, um, especially, like, group behaviors, um based off of conditions um and it's a very situational uh, lens but how would it look if you had free will in that thought experiment like that's that's always my question mm. is it super super easy relatively to provide some kind of argument for hey you don't have any free will look you could only these were the only options but i'm like well what would it look like we need to know what what would every single city pop into your mind? Like, does free will mean being omniscient? Like, I literally don't know every... I don't know, like, the cities in my immediate area. Like, I never know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Like, why... Like, that city... So the cities that I don't know won't pop into my mind. Mm-hmm. But I do know more cities. But then, you know, doesn't it... Must I have free will in order for the cities that are uh, more famous, more salient, or cities that I've been to more recently to pop in... Doesn't it seem logical that I could have free will and for Paris or London to pop in my mind quicker than, I don't know, some stupid city in Texas? Like, I no, it doesn't... That's that, that seems totally reasonable, right? And if I'm on a limited time crunch, if I'm literally thinking I need a city soon... Wouldn't we want a fewer options? Like, what, what would we would we want to have? Like, be like a supercomputer? Like, must we? the The point is, must we not be constrained by our humanity to have whatever human free will 
would be. Because a lot of times it seems like people are saying it's just due to the fact that we're humans and when we're constrained by human psychology that we don't have free will. In which case I would say all you're saying there is we're humans. And like, I, I know that, right? <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't even really be saying anything. It's like the extremes of what is full free will and what is not free will both don't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, hey, let's take a quick break and then uh, we will come back for some more conversation. Before we get back to the episode, I thought I'd let you know that links to some of the content discussed today as well as additional complimentary materials can be found on the podcast tab of my website, marshallmccready.com. That's Marshall with two L's, M-C-C-R-E-A-D-Y.com. There, you can also find links to the podcast's Facebook page, my personal blog, and a contact form in case you want to share any thoughts, suggestions, or book recommendations. And with that, let's get back to the rest of the episode. And we're back. So, uh, I just need to ask Marshall again about his argument for free will because I needed that. To, I needed that to sink in a little bit more. So, Marshall, can you, uh, you know, do another take at your argument for free will? Yeah. So, first, a lot of times, what people mean when they say that the physical laws of the universe um, indicate that we don't have free will is they're they're thinking about your brain. And so, like, people like Sam Harris, like, Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, right? So it's, it's, it's not surprising that he thinks in terms of physical, neurological, neurochemical processes, right? Like, uh, the, the physiology behind your psychology is neuroscience-based, and he's thinking like this. And, uh, you know, and there's all these, you know, thought ex there's all these, like, weird situations. Like, there's this case with, I think the, the man's name is Thomas Gage, where he, it's famous, a, a case where he had like this pipe shoot through his head and then his personality changed. Well, clearly his changing his brain affected his personality in a way that he didn't have any control over, which is um, very interesting. You know, a lot of times people who are, uh, in, in ex have an extreme disorder or something, have something... Um, neurologically wrong with them. Neuro, their neurophysiology is, is out of whack or it's abnormal or something. Okay, so what they mean is the processes in your brain determine your psychology. The brain determines your mind, which determines your behavior. Or you might as well just say your brain determines your behavior. Cut the mind out altogether, right? It's just a, it's a, it's an illusory middleman, right? Um, okay, so when I look at that, so first of all, what does it mean to people? If you, you pull an average person off the street and you say, you don't have any free will. Think about how your brain is physical. It's just a kind of a physical mass. And why on earth would you think that the physical mass of your brain is subject to physical laws any different than the laws that are affecting the rock falling off the cliff. Mm -hmm. What, are you some kind of substance dualist? <laughs> Do you think that your brain is somehow exempt? 
It's just more complicated. It's just still more complicated, but why wouldn't we think it was... Laws nonetheless. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, and this is a strong argument, right? But what I what strikes me is that it takes the brain out of the context of human life. Which it can't be. It is always part of the context. It's always in your head, walking around in your city. You can't be in a vacuum. Part, you are part of your environment. Part of you is your environment. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the level when we say you don't have free will. Like, you are not your brain. You are more than your brain. You are your body. You um, are your context. You are yeah. your context. You, you are your spouse to some extent. You are the car that you drive. You are your favorite video game. Like, really, if you can enter into something and become one with it in your subconscious, and if it can affect your behavior, it's kind of like you. So for here's a really good example. It's a, this is a class. I can't remember the name of it, but it's this classical paper in philosophy where, say there's a man who, he, he has short-term memory loss. It's like, well, he has whatever the guy, Guy Pierce and Memento has, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he keeps this diary. Okay, so say his amnesia is not quite as bad as the guy Memento. I'm, I'm realizing that that doesn't work very well. But he can't remember where the grocery store is. Um, in his head, he can't. But he pulls out his journal, and he never leaves home without this journal. He has his, all of his memories of where things are and what times they're open or whatever. He's got like a Google Maps in his journal. He pulls out the journal, and it says the grocery store is on 11th and Custer. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then he goes. Well, that's like me remembering where it is. His journal is... It functions. It's the functional equivalent of my memory storage in my head, if that, whatever you want to call it, my, my memory mm-hmm. of facts mm-hmm. of where the grocery store is. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, that journal is part of him, right? And the, the same thing for my phone, the same thing for my wife. You know, there, studies have shown that couples, they unconscious, this is unconscious, they will unconsciously store memories or facts in their other in their spouse's mind and like if you think about your parents or maybe or you think you you kind of know this is true like i i will i will forget something and then i because unconsciously i will remember that aliona will remember or i will think that um and this is you know i'm not explicitly thinking this but mm. studies have found that this actually operates where you just kind of unconsciously store things in other people's minds in the same way. Um, th- although this is more conscious that you would store a note on your phone. Like you're, if you're storing a note on your phone to look back later, and if you're, if you're looking back later will affect you and affect your life. That phone is kind of like you same thing for a sticky note. Um, it's the same thing as remembering mm. and remembering affects your future. Mm-hmm. Remembering is the part of you that pushes you through your future. It's the part of you that determines your actions, Mm -hmm. largely, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and if that's true, then what we mean when when someone comes up to you and they say, hey, because your brain is this physical shit that is subject to all the physical laws, Mm -hmm. that really, it takes your brain and it puts it in a vacuum and it calls it you and it says all of the other things your 
phone, your journal, your friends, your wife, your post-it notes. I could go on, right? Those things aren't part of you. It, it precludes the vast number of things that affect us and determine our behavior. So that's why I think about my phone. Mm -hmm. um, because, well, my phone is one of those things that is external to my brain, mm -hmm. right? Um, so what you, would, what you would have to do then is to say for humans not to have free will, not just their brains. Um, and this is what people, I think, do say, like their brains, but everything else in the world is also, you know, determined by these physical laws. Mm -hmm. But what gets me is, and then, you know, I know, this might be, I'm still clarifying this argument as I go, but it makes sense to me. If you have to make that move, and you have to say humans don't have free will, not just because of their, the, the, that their brain is subject to physical laws, but also because literally everything in the entire world uh, is subject to the same laws, nothing could even theoretically affect your future, then to me, you, you, you are just a, you have radical faith in determinism. Nothing, what could possibly disprove that theory? What could even theoretically disprove it? It becomes an unfalsifiable thing if you have to make the leap from uh, that people aren't... Uh, because then what you're saying is, is that your future depends on everything. Which is unfalsifiable. Which is unfalsifiable, and, but it's, it's very subtle. It's a very subtle, difficult thing that I'm saying. I, I, think, <laughs> I think it makes sense, mm -hmm. which is that if you have to make the argument that extreme, mm -hmm. then you're precluding, precluding the possibility of free will. In which case, you, if, it, if you believe in this thing that is completely unfalsifiable, mm -hmm. um, then you, you just agree. Right. You have faith you just, in it. You you, have, yeah. You, so, you, it doesn't make, like, how could, how could you disprove it? Let me throw this at you, which is like the image that sort of gets created in my mind when you're talking the way that you're talking. Okay. So you're, you're talking about why your argument for free will, and you're saying that because you can outsource part of your something, will, ideas to another object or person, which changes you, that shows you have free will? Is that a, is a, is that a way to distill down the argument a little bit? Well, it here's what it shows. Yeah. It shows that even if your brain mm -hmm. is, is cause and effect, mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. can affect something what the else. inputs are. Right. Yeah. Okay. And if you can affect what the inputs are, like if your brain's just like this in and out input output machine, mm -hmm. but you can determine in the future what your inputs will be, mm. then you've determined the outputs. You've changed. Okay. Okay. And if, and what people mean when they say that we're completely determined is they mean you have no ability to control what your outputs are. That's at least what I take it to mean. That's at least the only reason thinking that would be significant because of the they were saying it because it's like oh you think you can control the outputs screw you you can't boom determinism you know and and i get and i you know it's a very very strong argument mm. right and i there are times when i'm not sure and i'm not i'm not sure right but but if you have to go uh if you have to extrapolate from just your brain and you have to like take my scenario 
if you have to say, well, uh, you only have the iPhone because, like you say, Steve Jobs, and if you say, and the iPhone only went off because of, uh, because Apple didn't have, like, a software glitch or the cloud didn't screw it up in some way, then I would go, what you're saying is that events happen, uh, that all these different strands are, uh, what's the best way to put it? It's, it's, it's the thing, it's basically just saying things happen because of the things that cause them. Mm-hmm. But what, and that's obviously true. But what you're not saying is that they're unimpacted by my agency, my choices, my will. Because how I see it is, if I can affect the outputs of my future behavior now, then my brain can be an input-output determined machine, but I'm the one determining it. It's still determined, but I'm setting the course. And, and if that holds, then, then all of the implications, all of the weight of what people mean when they say you don't have free will is not there, because the weight is you can't determine your future. But if I can if I can take control of the strand of cause and effect from my personal life, then what's the significance of saying I don't have free will? It, it, the, the sense in which I don't have free will, it's like, cool, but I have, a, I have a superseding sense of free will where I can change what my lack of free will leads me to do, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, my brain, because, like, I don't deny the, the argument that our brain is like a rock, I'm just saying it, the, we get to choose which cliff we jump off of. <laughs> you know, the problem with determinism is I feel like what, what a lot of the proponents of determinism is I feel like their time frame is too small and that their uh, number of variables are too few. Um, and once you broaden the time frame and you, you, you take you to be more than your brain, mm-hmm. you're left with something far more complex um, than this simple principle. And, and, and I think that complexity, I'm not just throwing in complexity to muddy up the waters. I'm saying I think that complexity has some implications for the initial argument. Okay. Let me throw this at you, and it might not really, it might, might end up being sort of off topic, but I don't know why I've got this image in my mind. But the thought about um, you being also your context and introducing this like complexity has implications in the beginning argument. So when, that idea, what it makes me think of is um, a whirlpool. So the, the, it's systems thinking. And I think it's Robert Greenleaf, whose book I'm talking about could also not be. But um, the idea being that uh, you are like a particle in a wave and you're the energy. And like, what is a wave? Like, it's... Is it the shape? But it moves through the water. Every, like a particle in, you know, sitting in the ocean, when a wave comes, it like gets pulled up to the wave. Sorry, we can't see this. And then um, or it, it, it gets pulled up and then the wave goes through it and it goes back down and it ends up right where it was before. Like this energy kind of went through it. Mm. Um, and so like if we're way, it, the, the systems, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get. The system is having all these like, like, effects on each other but you are not just you you're also part of the system and so Mm. i think of like like a whirlpool like let's say you're in this big 
toilet. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's literally like the spinning water. Yeah. And you are... It's a good metaphor for life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess, like, you... This is the universe that you're in. You, you're you just there, and there's a bunch of other people, and you're all spinning around the whirlpool. And um, you can... I'm trying... Like, when you say you can affect how you... Like, you can be an input. You can decide your inputs. Like, I'm thinking, like, okay, so you, here you are in the whirlpool, and everything around you is causing you to be where, and I guess where you are is what I'll say for now, where you are, and you don't really have a change. You can't change that. The water's just going to keep on moving you around. But if you reach out and you grab another person, you, uh, as you're going around this, you also might start kind of spinning mm. with that other person. Or you could, like, try and swim up, and so you would be affecting your position within the larger system. Um, that's kind of like sort of a, the visualization that I start to get when you start talking about that. It's like, okay, if you're in a whirlpool and you start kind of swimming away from the vortex, like you're like, I don't want to go into that vortex. Like you can maybe swim. You're, you're displacing water behind you as you try to move away, but... Like that water comes back around and everything around you is constantly having mm. trillions of like cause and effects. So there's just like a lot of complexity there. Um, but I don't know, that's kind of where you were saying that free will, if you can affect, if you can, you can change your inputs and outputs, then that shows that you have, it takes away the weight of the fact that you aren't totally determined. I don't know. I Well, I like that you say systems because mm. here's, uh, I don't know how, there's a weird way in which this is above my pay grade, but there's a weird way in which different rules appear, to me at least, um, to apply at different levels of analysis. Mm. So whether if you're looking at atoms and molecules... There, that's the very, that's the, or quarks go even like you're in a quantum realm or whatever. Um, you're looking at that and you're kind of using an, uh, 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 you know, a, a theory of relativity and all this stuff. Um, the rules that apply to the units of analysis at that level are going to be different than the rules of analysis at the uh, like biological level, um, or or the anatomical level, like your organs, um, the rules that govern your organs are going to be, the content of them is going to be so different than the rules of quarks or atoms or chemicals, um, and all of these different rules accurately describe different units of an, different units at different levels of analysis. And a lot of times, and I'm not, I don't have a strong opinion on this, this is really complicated for me, uh, but a lot of times I feel like these ultra-scientific types and a lot of like the new atheist figures, like 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 uh, Lawrence Krauss or Sean Carroll, I don't know if he's a new atheist, but he's kind of new atheist-y, uh, or uh, Sam Harris or people like that, they're scientists, right? And I think scientists in the hard sciences, you know, I'm, I'm going to be... A, I'm hoping to be a scientist in the soft sciences, social science. Um, they tend to think, I think they tend to be atomistic. They tend to be reductionist. 
And so they look at the smallest level and they go, well, the smallest level is the most real level. I disagree, um, especially if we're talking about most real in regard to human existence, human life, human behavior, human thinking, human belief. Okay, so, so if you take a system, like a social system, like the system of society, um, of, of you take the system of one society and you take a system of another society uh, and you're looking at them and you're, you're describing them and you're talking about their rules, you know, so you're a sociologist or, or maybe a, you're a, an anthropologist in some, something. Um, the rules, so to speak, what's causing what and what you use to predict phenomena are going to be so vastly different than a particle physicist, if you're, you know, and so, but, you know, theoretically, there are only one set of rules for everything because things happen in these categorizations in our head based on scale. They're kind they're pragmatic, right, for us because we can't conceptualize what the ultimate rules are. Um, so, woo, what you do with that, I don't know. But what, what I constantly come back to, and this is something we were talking about, talking about, is what matters most? Like, a lot of people will say truth, right? It, like, uh, well, not a lot of, I mean, a lot of people will say that, but not a lot of people will actually follow that through, right? And would you rather know some truth that impacts you and your life and your goals in a negative way or believe in a truth that helps you get to those goals faster. So, and I'm, I'm definitely fall in line with a pragmatist kind of tradition. I have a kind of a pragmatic view of truth where I say, if it gets you closer to your goals, then it is true. But it's difficult to talk about another time. But what does not believing in free will do for people? I know some people who, once they started becoming very deterministic it kind of correlated with kind of a depression hmm. and um and sometimes i don't know if this determinism is the root or a consequence of this depression like and i've gone through that too like i went through a period when i was kind of, when i was depressed really depressed and i i tended to be more deterministic where i was just thinking like ah oh, today has no meaning because it's all determined. Meaning is intricately connected with agency. Because where we find our meaning is what it is that we're pursuing. Hmm. And if you're constantly reminding yourself of this thing which might be which might be objectively true, you are really taking a toll on your daily experience. And like like so if I'm if I'm if I'm in the middle of like a project and I'm and this is this project for to in an attempt to solve this issue that I really care about and I'm passionate about and I'm like I really want to address this like this is a maybe a problem in society it's a problem in my life or an interpersonal problem there are all kinds of problems and and if I pick one to solve and I'm working on it but then I have this floating thought that like hits me and it like takes me out of the zone of like your hard work it's determined and ultimately you're just like this rock and you're not doing anything. You can't do anything. You're, you're really, it kind of leads you to this nihilistic mm. 
really colorless, bloodless universe where everything's black and white. There is no human color. And uh, that's just, I, I come to this point where I'm like, if you really get down to it, what's more true to you? This, this fact, this potential fact that you don't have free will or, and I really think it comes to this human life in a meaningful way. It's kind of a choice. And a lot of the times I've noticed that even the people who claim to take the first option to believe in the thing, they still totally act and behave and seem to think and talk as if they picked the second. I have yet to really see someone who isn't depressed and nihilistic who really seems to have picked the first one, right? Mm-hmm. And even then, they're still, they're still, act, they're, they haven't killed themselves. You know, I don't want to be you know, uh, macabre, but like they they still go about their day Mm. as though there's some meaning to the day, in which case it sure seems like they still picked that latter option, right? They, they, they are just repeating the mantra more frequent, more frequently in their minds throughout the day, maybe. Yeah. And even, like, I think there's, like, some Buddhist tradition, maybe, where they say that, that we don't have free will. And it's kind of like this, you know, and it is a peacefulness, I think, of coming to what will, will happen. But even Buddhists choose to dwell on that. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> what, what will happen, maybe will happen, but it will be, it'll happen with your involvement, you and can't uninvolve yourself, and if you did, it would probably look like suicide. And even then, that would be a choice. <laughs> and even, like, the fact that there's even an implication to the fact that there's no free will indicates to me that we are operating in this realm of subjective perception and interpretation and categorization that I would say inherently, so this is consciousness, I would also I would argue inherently involves some element of development or adaptation or ad- evolution, um, and it's inescapable. Like, can, can you be conscious and not change in a way that is you know either governed by what you're aiming at or by other things? No, doesn't seem like it. Right. But, you know, <laughs> other people go, well, you know, that's just, well, that's just things happening and is they're all determined and stuff. But to me, it's like, well, what's the fundamental reality? Is the fundamental reality um, consciousness or is it a material perspective of the universe? I mean, from where I'm sitting, it seems like consciousness. So, uh, Well, let's talk about this one last thing and then I think we should wrap it up. But the one thing that we wanted to talk about was predestination and its effects on the concept of salvation. So what do you take from, how do you put those two together? Has that impacted you, your thinking in the past? Yeah, so the idea of predestination, meaning like God has decided about, God has decided who is going to heaven already, um, which is, again, I think sort of a Calvinist view, where there's like members of... Yeah, irresistible grace, the elect. Yeah, the elect, um... It's like, it's not of any of your doing. God has chosen you. Um, And (laughs) 
uh, yeah, the implications of salvation, that's just so, seems odd to me because if God is the one that chooses you, A, you won't ever know if you are part of the elect because you won't know if you've, you, you don't elect yourself. And since you're not God, you don't know if you've been saved. So there's that. Um, two, the idea that, I, th- I think that's sort of the extreme of, uh, like, so the Catholic idea that you have to like, do certain things and you can't, if you don't do those, then you aren't going to heaven. Well, the opposite of that is like, no, you don't have to do anything. Um, yeah, then it's, <laughs> then it's kind of like, well, then why, then it's, then it's really like, why did God make you exactly the way you are? If he was just going to choose or not choose you, it really doesn't seem like he's caring about your free will or character because he is choosing you regardless of that. He's got his own criteria. So that's sort of like, well, then what's the point? Why did God want to make you in the first place? If there wasn't going to be some sort of like thing that you could accomplish. Yeah. Well, the thing that gets me is under that perspective, I really have a hard time putting you, A-U, any you, into that universe where God has determined everything. Like, there is no, the you, every single definition of you that you can think of, apart from just, like, your material being, are totally illusory or something, or just not there. Mm. And because if God created the you... And made it where it, there is no separation in agency or in thinking or in anything. Like, if you literally are something that God made to be this exact way, never to divert from anything that God ever wanted. Robotic. Then you are God. Mm. Like, you are just this little piece of God that God cut out and put there. And there's no separation. And that separation, I feel like, is crucial to for free will, for free will, but also for any conceivable notion of salvation that is not just mm-hmm. God saving Himself right. or condemning Himself, right? Cleaning right. up His own mess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, it not it's like the mess is Him. Like right. everything becomes like God substance Mm -hmm. or if ever like, and I know that that's something that Christians say who do believe in free will and do believe in like, well, at least in my experience is a traditional notion of salvation of like this, you put your faith in God or, and, and you take, you take the Kierkegaardian leap of faith and then you're there. Um, and if God, if there's none of that, if there's none of that will, then it really just seems like God like twist you know those like little like things at cracker barrel or like those toys that you can like twist up and then they'll like run around or something until it's just like he twisted up a bunch of those things Mm -hmm. and set them loose and he sent some on the direction to like fall into this burning pit of pit of fire and he sent some to like fall into i don't even know what like a fluffy blanket marshmallows yeah we have marsh yeah just a sea of marshmallows and do those with those hamsters have a you like what, what what would consciousness even mean mm-hmm. in that it would consciousness itself would be like god or 
And if that's the case, then God's just, what, he's like tormenting himself in hell? I just, what? <laughs> yeah. That, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense. But I do think that, um, well, so how, what I, what I think is interesting is how do, like, I, you know, I went through a lot of, I was like that kid in Sunday school and I don't know if there's always that kid. Uh, but I, in my experience, I was always that kid if I was there of asking the difficult questions of like, of these things, like, well, why did Eve sin if not God making her such that she was more predisposed than unpredisposed to sin. Because mm-hmm. that's a binary. You are either such that you are going to sin uh, when tempted or such that you aren't. And she was such that she was. Why was she that way? Right. Well, it's like God had this mountain. He's like, if I drop a rock down there, the rock will end up down there. But if I want to put a Eve on a snowboard down there, she's going to go and end up over there. And so it's like, why was she such that way? God decided, what am I going to drop here? Eve. <laughs> yeah, he set the initial conditions. Right. And in my experience, I, I have not received or found, I, like I've looked and I've asked, a what I would consider to be a good answer. Mm-hmm. The best answer, and the ones that I really feel are most honest by the people who I honestly tend to think, if, if they've seemed like they've really thought about it, the answer that I think is best is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But that's but for a lot of people, this isn't a defeater. And I understand that, right? Like, it doesn't need to be. There are all kinds of things that people don't have figured out, right? And they still... Like, I have literally zero idea how this microphone works or how my car works or how computers work or my phone or even, like, my skillet. I don't get that. Um, and I still believe that it will do things for me Mm. and that's what's important a lot of the times so i don't it's fine but there are all kinds of answers that you'll get and like okay so one time you and i we went to this apologetics event Mm. and then there was this guy that you were talking with after the event and you were asking him that you you shared with him your nemo analogy Mm. or you asked that and and he was talking about it, and he just had like these answers that were just like pre-scripted apologetic answers and he was just I just hated his whole persona. I just wanted to like rip, I just wanted to like shake him and be like, think about these things deeply. Like don't just like, a lot of apologetics is just people like coming up with arguments and they're like, these are good arguments, but they don't seem like to me, there's this lack of like personal conviction and existential angst that I think characterizes the, the truly deep thinkers. Um, and um, so when I've asked these questions, uh, well, we were talking about this the other day where like a lot of times the answers we'll get are, there's this, this is a weirdly common one of like, imagine a train and mm. there are, can you, can you put it better than I did? Can you, I don't know if I can do it better, but the, the idea, the way it was explained to me was like, um, so you've got these two tracks, these two, <laughs> <laughs> these two lines and they're parallel and they go straight forward off into the distance. And what they represent is like your, uh, understanding of how the world works, I guess. Maybe I'm, you can do better, like jump in and be like, no, it's more like this. But anyway, so they're going, they're going forward and you don't see anywhere where they cross and make sense. And, and it's like connect. God and free will or will be like God's omnipotence and omniscience and then There's, human free will on the other. Seems like a paradox. Right. Seems like these two lines never cross, but <laughs> out in the distance, beyond the clouds, it's going straight up, let's say 
they cross. You just don't see where it happens. Doesn't mean they don't cross, just means you can't see it. And someday, after you die, you'll get up to that place and you'll be like, ha, I see it. I trust that they cross somewhere. And like, that's actually been that, that metaphor, that illusion of like, they cross just out of your, out of your eyesight. As, I don't know. People tell me that all the time about like my questions. And I just think it's so unsatisfactory because then I can just be like, all right, so off in the distance, they cross. What if later on, further in the distance, <laughs> they uncross or cross again or tie a knot? Yeah. Who cares? Like, that, just saying that like, it's past your point of view just still means like we don't know as of right now. Yeah. It, it's so it's f- so frustrating to me because like it, it, I really feel like it's fundamentally dishonest. Mm-hmm. Like because they're they're speaking as though like that this is some kind of answer or argument or in argument. favor. If they were being honest, my view. If they were being honest, and this is what my ex- experience. The, what I mean by honest is like the people who are presenting you with a picture of what they genuinely feel like they understand because a lot of people will present you with a picture of what they would like to understand and that's what a lot of apologetics is but um they're literally just saying i have no idea right and i but i still have faith and i have faith that it works out and see that's fine like Mm -hmm. i i I have that about some things in my life um and like i won't go into that but they, the, just say that. Yeah. Just be honest. Yeah, the problem is that they're trying to use words to make you think that they've got more figured out or confidence in something that maybe you don't have yet when in reality they just don't know as much as you don't know. Because um, it fits, because that, that thing, that train tracks thing, which like you, I've heard that a crazy number of times. Mm-hmm. And like the first time I heard that, I was like, what is this crap? And then when I kept hearing it, I was like, I can't, I am in shock. Like, mm. what on earth? Um, and it's, it's because it takes the form. It's formally an argument in the sense that it sounds like something that is, that, that moves some weight, right? Like, it's like, whoa, I have this understanding and I'm going to present you with this analogy mm-hmm. that will indicate but really once you unpack it it's just I don't know yeah all, all it is is just saying like hey use your imagination isn't there a way to imagine a way where this would work out and the answer is like they want you to say yes and so isn't isn't there a way that this could work out in your imagination yes oh then you believe too no that doesn't prove that it is the way it is it's just saying like I can use my mind to see what you're saying as far as one possible like What's outside of that door? There could be a pizza man outside the door. Can you imagine there's a pizza man outside that door? Isn't it possible? Isn't that a way that could explain well, how we're thinking? Wait, do you... Like, to me, I I can't. Like, I, I can picture the words. Like, I can picture someone going, I have magically solved these two concepts. But mm. even in my... The reason that I am asking the question in the first place is I literally can't imagine those two railroad tracks crossing. Like, can you even, like, that's the whole thing. That's the whole problem. I can't even theoretically imagine what's behind the door, if what's behind the door is God and free will. Well, no, but, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and they're substituting it for something that you can imagine and and doing a, 
Um, bait and switch. A bit, well, yeah, yeah, the uh, Indiana Jones, like, there's exactly oh, yeah. they're <laughs> the, like, the skull and yeah, the, yeah. You can imagine this thing. This thing is like the thing you can't imagine. Think about the thing you can't imagine and then listen to my point. And then because you can imagine and fathom my point about this thing, then I'm going to say it's the same with the thing you can't imagine. There. Now you know how the thing that you don't understand works. Mm-hmm. And that, that's sort of the dishonest thing that I feel like is happening is that the, the most true thing is, is that, like, you're not God, you're not dead, you don't know anything I don't know. By definition, the most true thing to say would be is, like, no one knows that. And you can say why you have faith, you can say why you are choosing to make choices based on uh, your best evidence. But, like, if you actually could prove it, you could prove it and then everyone would agree. So... Just the fact that you're using this metaphor and being like, ah, it, it does seem kind of uh, like a trick because mm-hmm. uh, I can I can see that that would be it would uh, it would yeah it would uh, it's not proving anything it's just trying to mask the problem mask the problem give you something more tangible to think about and then yeah and you know like I think there's a lot to be said for like intellectual humility like. A lot of times, I think people get defensive, and rightfully so, I think, because, like, I've been that person who's been in the room, and, like, now I I, I can't stand, I regret it, right? Like, I can't stand this version of myself that I still fall into sometimes of, like, this, you know, like, I don't like it when people call me an atheist. For one, I don't think it's very accurate, Um, but two, there's, like, this, you know, there's this stereotype now, and it's largely accurate in my experience, of like a neck beardy, angsty, like like someone who's like rationality can solve all of the world's problems and I know what rationality is, you know? Like someone like that, right? And so I've been that person who's been like asking questions not for their answers, but for their effect mm-hmm. of like Look at your stupid worldview now. You know, mm. to be really frank, that's what it is. Mm. It's it's a condemnation. I'm not engaging in a in a dialectic in the pursuit of greater understanding, which I is just the best thing to be doing, right? And I think a lot of Christians, when put in those situations, and even when put in into those positions by someone who's well intentioned, they get defensive because, um, like an a, an answer that you don't know, it has implications even if you're not thinking about them, like. It, it makes you feel maybe dumb or unsophisticated or something. But what I've noticed is that the the, the people who are religious, uh, religious thinkers, and there's a lot of great religious thinkers who I respect and I admire, a lot of the ones who I respect and admire have gone through the motions deeply and have come to a place where they have enough intellectual humility, intellectual humility, but also intellectual um, and and religious faith to say, I don't know, and that's okay. But in my experience, very few average Christians can can say that. Yeah, because then it's like, oh, they don't have faith, or they don't know, like, you know, you believe in, yeah. Or, or, or Or they throw out some overly simplistic answer, which in its nakedness shows you that they actually have not, grappled with the problem or that that it's like a knee-jerk reaction so like one time like i i stopped going to church when i went to college 
But then I started going again um, with my girlfriend at the time. And I remember um, this was after we had, I think I we had broken up or I don't know why I went through all that detail, but I was just sitting in the in the Bible study and we were reading this story like from the Bible and I had all these, I always had all these questions, right? Like sometimes I wondered like, what would they talk about if I wasn't there? But, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure they, I'm sure they would. That's kind of a pretentious thing to say, but I, I remember sitting there and I asked this question and I think it was like, I remember feeling like this is a tough question, right? I'm like, I'm like, and at the moment I had like hopes, like I was genuinely curious, like I was only there at that Bible study because I thought it was worthwhile to be there. I, I respected the youth pastor. And uh, this girl who I, was very different temperamentally from me, like turned over to me and she had this like, she looked disgusted. And she was like, just have faith, Marshall. And I mean, I don't want to like, well, in that moment, I was like, this is exactly the wrong thing. Like I, that girl has not remotely considered this thing. Like she doesn't, she didn't even seem to care. Hmm. Um, and I, I mean, this isn't like a rant about religion thing, but, and I just, the people who are able to go, yeah, Marshall, that's a good question. Let's talk about that. Or I don't know. Mm. Um, or I've thought about that a lot mm. and I have a lot to say, but I still don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the thing that, um, S saying, um, just believe or just have faith that ends a conversation that ends a connection that actually pushes you apart because what they're saying is do the thing that I've done or do the thing that I want you to do or get on my, you know, level and if you can't, I don't get you. There's nothing to talk about here. Just get, just have faith. Like it's mm. that simple. It's that that is a that's a conversation ender, not a conversation starter. And a conversation is a relationship. So it's it's like this sort of condescending, isolating thing to do and to say. Mm. Yeah, it seems very anti-Christian. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I, I was just thinking about it as we as we start to close, is, like, accountability in mm. free will. Like, mm. um, I know Galen Strawson, he's a philosopher, he's done a lot of work on this, and he's very, there's a great podcast for for anyone listening called The the uh, um, the Very Bad Wizards, and there are some podcasts in there about free will where they talk about Galen Strawson's argument for accountability and free will, free will and why he thinks, I'm pretty sure Strawson thinks, and I, I would agree with this, that you can't have moral accountability without agency, without free will. Um, hmm. And I might be mischaracterizing it, but so let me just talk about what I think. That's what I think. Like, you can't say to anyone, like, you might be able to say this situation is bad. Hmm. Um, and in that situation, you might be able to kind of in the abstract hold that there's no free will, but two things. The first thing, is that what we mean a lot of times when we talk about moral accountability is the accountability of people. We don't mean the accountability of a situation. A situation doesn't have accountability. So if you're looking at an individual and you're assessing, are they accountable for this thing? They, they had to have chosen otherwise. Otherwise, you would just be punishing them for something they can't help. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like in Clockwork Orange, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. The, the main character... Um, he's, he's deprived of his free will 
but he's and he's forced to do good. Hmm. Well, there's no accountability if you're forced to be good. Hmm. And it's not the what I think one of the points of the movie is in my view is that one of the points of the movie is him being forced to do good. He's he would be a lot better of a person if he had the capacity and the temptation and the ability to do bad and, and choose not to choose not to because mm. that's you kind of have to have both options to be accountable if you only have one option what are you accountable for does it even mean there's no choice yeah yeah and so what i worry about like regardless of the truth of the matter which is very important all duh but also is how, how does the idea of not having free will affect people's sense of accountability? I have personally experienced, and I know other people who have personally experienced, this sense of diminished accountability mm-hmm. due to just the ter- determinist, deterministic nature of the universe. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I did this bad thing, but... And then it's really... You can use this deterministic paradigm to create, like, incredibly powerful rationalizations for behavior. Because all you have to do is find some plausible story about why the past just made it where you just had to do the thing, right? And from a, from just a practical standpoint, is that something you want to be doing? Like, is that the is that what someone who's dedicated to bettering themselves and, mm. and pursuing their projects in a responsible way does? I don't think so. If anything, they're looking to the past and looking at what they could have done differently, mm-hmm. right? That's huge. Mm-hmm. Having regret and like identifying situations, um, and it's really you could say like, well, you could not have free will, and look to the past and go, well, I was determined to do this past thing, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I literally okay, this starts to get I don't know so jumbled. Um, well, is there anything? Is there anything? In closing, that we didn't talk about that you wanted to, or no? I think that that's a good uh, place to finish it off. Would love to keep on having more conversations in the future, though. Cool beans. Well, we'll probably have you back on. Well, this has been episode one. Thank you so much to Nathan for for um, bestowing us with his presence, and I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. It was super fun. Thanks so much. All right.